This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Pandemic Planet, the podcast from the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. I'm Catherine Bliss, a senior fellow at CSIS, and I'm joined today by Ayoade Alakija, Chief Strategist for Convince Africa, co-chair of the African Union Africa Vaccine Delivery Alliance for COVID-19, and a member of the Global Advisory Board for Women Lift Health. Dr. Alakija previously served as the Chief Humanitarian Coordinator for the National and International Response in the Lake Chad region between 2016 and 2019. Now, we're here today to talk about the delivery of COVID-19 vaccines in Africa and what a globally equitable distribution of vaccines would really look like, what the prospect of patent waivers on COVID-19 vaccines means for the potential to scale up vaccine manufacturing on the African continent, how the COVID-19 pandemic has hit women and girls especially hard, and steps that can be taken to improve vaccine confidence in the wake of reported adverse effects related to the AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson products. So, Yodi, welcome to Pandemic Planet. Thank you very much, Catherine. You're the co-chair of the African Union's Vaccine Delivery Alliance, really pushing to accelerate the distribution of COVID-19 vaccines on the continent. But over the past several months, it's become clear that the vast majority of COVID-19 vaccines are going to high-income countries in Europe and North America in particular. And in late February, the global COVID-19 coordination facility, COVAX, started delivering doses to self-financing countries, as well as the 92 and lower middle-income countries eligible for the advanced market commitment. But, you know, by the end of April, just a fraction of the anticipated doses had actually been delivered and, and were on the ground. Now, some of this is due to health system issues and logistical challenges, but a big share of the problem is also due to the surge of the virus in India where record-breaking numbers of confirmed cases have led to a crisis in hospitals and access to care across the country. Serum Institute of India has a contract to produce doses for distribution through COVAX, but the Indian government has now imposed export controls saying the doses are needed domestically. So thinking about this complicated, you know, very global situation in terms of supply chains and distribution and production, you know, when we talk about globally equitable distribution of COVID-19 vaccines, what does that mean? You know, is it between countries? Is it within countries? Is it within communities? And, you know, I guess to add to that, if we're talking about ending the pandemic, or at least moving beyond this acute phase of the crisis, why is equitable distribution of tools like vaccines essential? And what should it look like? 
Well, thanks, Catherine. I think, first of all, I'd like to challenge your assertion that the reason that there's been limited distribution across Africa, for instance, is due to health system issues and logistical challenges. I mean, I don't think we can say that. And I think that that narrative has come from a place where because there's been inequity and because we need to, you know, reshape that conversation somewhat so that it doesn't look quite as bad as it actually is, we're now trying to find, you know, reasons for why only 18 million people in doses of vaccines have been delivered in Africa, a continent of 1.2 billion people versus over 300 million doses in India for a continent of 1.4 billion people. I think it's important to put that in stock in those absolute terms and numbers for people to see what's going on. So it is not due to health system issues and logistical challenges because 18 million doses have been delivered into arms, 32 to 33 million doses have actually reached the continent. So, you know, yes, we've only seen 18 million actual vaccinations or, you know, some of those are actually double doses. So it's not 18 million people. But the point is global equity of vaccines is completely and totally non-existent. It is non-existent. The, the figures and the number that I just gave you shows you that, yes, India is actually producing the vaccines, which will take us on to the production issue and the waiving of intellectual property rights. But high-income countries of the world, a few countries, have held on to most of the vaccine supplies of the world. Right now, there are countries that are beginning. The UK, the other day, spoke about purchasing 60 million booster doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine in preparation for their fall anticipated surge. And yet, some countries of the world haven't seen a single dose. That is the true definition of inequity. In the United States, where we're just hearing the 12 to 15-year-olds have now been cleared to be vaccinated with Pfizer-BioNTech, people are, are jubilating over the fact that their teenagers are really keen to get vaccinated, jabbed, and get out there and get on with normal life. That is fantastic. But again, inequity. Because in Africa, in parts of Asia, the Pacific, the healthcare workers, the frontline workers, the elderly, those with pre-existing conditions and comorbidities are begging. They're desperate for life. They're not desperate to get out there so they can go to prom. They're desperate to get a vaccine so they can live and not die. So how do you see the export controls and the, you know, already the rollout has been very slow. And then now with what's happened in India, really putting the brakes on on additional exports and production for the rest of the world, how do you see that playing out over the next three to four months? Do you see a resolution in the short term or are we really going to have to look toward really increasing that manufacturing capacity on the continent in order to begin to relieve some of this? I think that there's a couple of questions in there. Do I see a resolution in the short term, three to four months? And then what are we going to do about increasing vaccine capacity? The short answer in terms of resolution in the short to medium term is no. There is no immediate resolution. I mean, the export freeze from India is completely understandable if, when we look at the fact that they are literally facing a giant humanitarian catastrophe right now as a country. I mean, we literally in the past two days have seen bodies floating down the Ganges River. We have seen funeral parties 
empires that signified the world on fire from a virus. We are seeing these searing images that are literally keeping me and I'm sure many others around the world awake at night. We are seeing a situation that it is literally advancing towards the African continent. In the last two days, the Seychelles have shut down. They've locked down again in the Seychelles, a country that has already vaccinated with the Sinopharm vaccine, 61% we're told of their population. But of course, Sinopharm are now telling us that a third dose is going to be needed, a booster dose is needed of their vaccine. So we now begin to talk about the efficacy levels of vaccines. What are we in? We're in a race between vaccines, variants, and the virus. You know, a few months ago, the virus was ahead. And now, unfortunately, the variants are ahead with the vaccines a very far third in the background. So, I mean, the next three to four months, there is no way, to my mind, that the Serum Institute of India or anyone else in India, to that matter, will be able to release vaccines for export because they have fires burning at home. And you cannot go out and put out a fire in your neighbor's house until you've put out a fire in your own house. And that is completely understandable. They have been generous, but there are not enough vaccines in the world. Other countries of the world who have excess vaccines need to begin to share. But again, before we ramp that up, that is going to take a while. So what is going to happen in the next three months? to four months, to my mind, is that Af- the India situation is advancing upon Africa. I've just mentioned the Seychelles. Yesterday, we had reports from Sudan where oxygen is already running out, where they're already beginning to struggle. Their health system is already beginning to struggle. And that is before the true hit if you like, of this B1617 variant surge. Yesterday, WHO declared it a variant of concern. They declared that it has increased transmissibility. There's talk of it being mildly antibody evasive. It's a small study, so yet we don't have the full peer-reviewed data. There is trouble ahead. So no, there is no resolution in the near future. And the waivers are not a quick fix. It's not a panacea. It's not a fix-all. That is a medium to long-term solution. I mean, nobody can begin manufacturing vaccines next week, you know, or next month. So that is a longer term solution that I see. So, you know, at least in part, COVAX was launched last year to ensure this kind of equitable distribution that was envisioned. But in addition to the production challenges and export challenges that we've been talking about, you know, so far it really hasn't raised the full amount of money that it needs. It has a pledging conference coming up in June Maybe at that point, it will be able to generate much needed revenue. But what do you think it will take for COVAX to bounce back from this crisis? And do we need to be looking beyond COVAX? Or where do you see COVAX fitting into this? And what do you think it will take for it to kind of supersede these current challenges? I think COVAX was a great in concept. It was very generous in concept. I think it was flawed in its design and its lack of inclusivity. And I think it was limited in its ambition. So COVAX from a charity do-gooder model of we're going to give to the poor 20% of vaccines if you still want to stay there, where we were sort of as a world 30 or so years ago. I think 30 or so years ago, it might have worked. The world has moved on. You know, COVAX has come from a place where we do onto you, we're not doing with you. And had, to my mind, and this is my take on things, had to my mind, COVAX in the envisioning and in the discussions around what are we going to do, we're going to put this mechanism together. Had there been a discussion about involving us, the low and low middle income countries of the world in that conversation on a deep level to say, what do you need? And how do you need it? To me, one word would have changed in the messaging for COVAX. And that word would have been, we will supplement 
your vaccine supplies with 20% for the low middle income countries of the world. Not that we will give you 20%, which led people to think that the 20% was all that was needed. And indeed, there was a push at the beginning from people within the wider vaccine world to say, look, hey, come on, guys, low middle income countries, you don't need more than 20%. We're giving you 20%. You should be grateful with what we're giving you. It was modeled as a charity model, as opposed to a partnership model. And that I think has been one of the greatest challenges for COVAX to my mind. I mean, at the moment, COVAX is stuttering and has stuttered in Africa to a total and complete halt. I mean, we're hearing of some, there's drips and drabs, the odd, there was a shipment here yesterday, Ghana received a shipment last week. But what it is, is we're recycling vaccines, for instance, now that because of the AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson kerfuffle, which we will discuss in a moment, you know, there's some countries saying, I don't want those vaccines. Or the other issue is some of the vaccines were actually mislabeled or the expiry dates were, first of all, we were told that they would expire in April and then Serum Institute then said, well, upon further testing, although we've labeled them for April or June expiry, they will now expire. You can use them until September. Well, it's like when, you know, you go into your cabinet and you pick out a can of beans and you look at it and you're like, ooh, okay, those expired September 2019. Ooh. I think I can still work with that. Not You can't do that with vaccines. And so some countries quite understandably have been really hesitant to use that word about using vaccines that we're being told you've extended the use by date of. But for them, there's already this conversation going on in, in America, in Europe, in UK about clots and various things. So they're already concerned. So some countries have said, no, we don't want them. They say they're expired in April. So COVAX is now repurposing some of those vaccines and giving them to other countries who as regulatory authorities are more, shall we say, more understanding and maybe have a deeper insight into the science of the issue. But that's what we've got going on at the moment. So COVAX has stuttered and we do need to start looking beyond COVAX. We need to start looking to bilateral sharing deals. We need to start looking to bilateral vaccine acquisition deals, such as what we're doing with the Africa Union. And yes, there's a push for countries to give excess doses to COVAX, but there also needs to be a push for countries to give excess doses two countries directly, because at this point in time, we're in a race against time. We don't have time for countries to be doing complicated multilateral deals. We need vaccines into countries as quickly as possible. So it sounds like from what you said, had COVAX taken the step early on to incorporate regional perspectives and you know thought about its work as a supplementary or complementary process to countries negotiating their own deals, there might have been a better preparedness to negotiate those deals and secure doses for populations earlier on rather than waiting for this 20% that was promised. At the same time, you know, you've talked about, you know, the importance of excess dose sharing and working that to some extent through COVAX, but also bilaterally. And then at the same time, there's been a, a long conversation now about the importance of building manufacturing capacity on the continent. And now with the proposal from South Africa and India in front of the World Trade Organization about the patent waivers, and then the United States coming in last week saying that it would support that, you know, we've got this whole discussion about the intellectual property rights going on. But when you think about strengthening manufacturing capacity, you know, obviously that's not a short-term solution, as you've said. I mean, it takes a while to get things underway and to build that work. But what do you think 
it will take to make that a reality, if not for COVID-19 vaccines, for the longer term, for pandemic preparedness more broadly. I think it is critical that we transfer the technology and we build capacity in regional nodes around the world. I think that what COVID has shown us is that this world was woefully ill-prepared for this pandemic. It showed us that the global health infrastructure as it exists today is not delivering for any of us. It's not delivering for you in America, for high-income countries. It's not delivering for the UK or the EU. And it's not delivering for us in Africa or for people in Papua New Guinea or Fiji or Indonesia. The global health system, as it was designed post-World War II, is broken and is not delivering. And so the the bigger question is, how do we redesign this system? I really think the COVID is going to reshape systems to come because we have learned a very painful lesson. I mean, we have lost now over three million people to this awful, awful virus that is as vicious as it is insidious. And so those who would argue that let us not share intellectual property rights with around the world, I find it staggering that there is still this argument that people are talking. I was interviewed the other day and somebody said to me that, well, the profits, I just literally didn't know what to say. What do you mean profits? You know, three million people dead and counting in tens of millions every month. And we're talking about profits over lives. The pharmaceutical companies have made a literal pun completely and totally intended killing over this. A lot of this technology has been accelerated because of taxpayer money from the US, from Germany, from the UK, and the G7 sort of high-income countries that put money into it. And so it's not as though they sort of just put this together on their own. It is a moral imperative. It is the ethical imperative. It is an economic imperative that we have to ensure that vaccines are available to all those who need them across the world, through COVID and beyond. The other issue with this, Catherine, is that COVID, sadly, is not going bye-bye anytime soon. You know, so yes, in the next three months, six months, one year, we may be building the technology or transferring the technology and building the manufacturing capacity. However, we're going to need boosters. We just mentioned boosters, 60 million bought already by the UK. So this is not done yet. And we need to be ready. And it is not just about vaccines. I want to stress that the ACT Accelerator, which was you know, launched by Ursula von der Leyen, president of the EU last year, almost exactly a year ago, and which is what gave birth and rise to COVAX, the ACT Accelerator talked about tools. And those tools include diagnostics and therapeutics. What we are seeing happen today in India is a result of failure of therapeutics. People don't have oxygen. People are literally in front of us on television gasping for breath. They're dying for want of oxygen. Diagnostics around the world, you know, people have said, I have said, and it's been quoted in the media, that there's a hidden pandemic around the world. This was before we saw what happened in India. To me, it was so clear that the numbers that were coming out were not real. You know, I mean, Nigeria yesterday reported 37 COVID cases in a country of 210 million people. I mean, really? <laughs> I mean, it's it's ludicrous. And we have to stop looking like for like. Oh, US reported 23,000 or 50,000. Nigeria reported 37. No, Nigeria 
or whatever other country it is, does not have the diagnostics capacity. So we're not comparing the same pandemic. We are in a world of two pandemics right now. We are in a two-tier world. We are in a haves and a have-nots. And unfortunately, the have-nots are going to drag the haves back right down to where they were a year ago if we do not ensure equity in both in vaccines, diagnostics, and therapeutics. So you mentioned this image of a, a two-pandemic world where you know data and information you know is is very different and the experience is quite stark. Here in the US, as vaccines have rolled out, you know, now we're facing a situation where we probably have more supply than demand. And there's a lot of discussion around vaccine confidence and what it will take to convince some of those, the 15% or so who, you know, are just saying they're really not ready to do it yet. And so, you know, I wanted to shift focus to that question of vaccine confidence because lessons from, you know, many different immunization campaigns over the years show that when there's an environment of, you know, a lack of data, a lack of kind of transparency in terms of what the government officials or health officials or state is is up to, there is quite a low level of trust and it can build hesitancy among populations that, you know, just really aren't sure who they can trust in terms of of what they're hearing. You know, lessons from the polio eradication initiative and other campaigns show that a a strong bond of trust between vaccinators and the community, especially is very important in ensuring acceptance and success of a program. So, I mean, if you don't have supplies, that's one whole set of challenges. But when there are supplies and then when outsiders come in pushing a vaccine for a virus or a condition that people may not have seen affect them personally, they may not be very receptive. And so, you know, I just wanted to ask you to reflect, you worked with the Nigerian Emergency Coordination Center with international and national levels. You have a great deal of experience working, particularly in conflict settings where that level of trust between the community and the government may be even more fragile. And so, you know, as you look ahead over the next period of time, the next year or so, what steps do you see it important to take now to build trust and strengthen confidence, particularly in some of those areas where there are political or social tensions that were there before or that may have generated as a consequence of the disruptions from the pandemic itself. There's a lot to unpack in that. I mean, first thing I want to pick up on is what you said, which there's more supply than demand in the US. It literally made me just, you know, shake my head because, you know, I'm going to use a proverb in my language and then translate. I belong to the Yoruba people. And we say that any lori ko nifila, any nifila ko lori. He who has a head has no cap and he who has a cap has no head. Here we are wanting desperately for vaccines in Africa and the Pacific and parts of Asia, Nepal and other parts of the world. And there you are in the United States with excess supply and desperately trying to drive up demand. It's painful. It is actually painful. So when you talk about a lack of trust, I think, first of all, there's lack of trust in systems globally is broken. Lack of trust in us as a global community, a once in a 100 year event, such as we're having now, demands a once in a 100 year level of global cooperation and global solidarity. And so if you're going to talk about the trust at country level in those or trust in multilaterals or whoever is bringing vaccines in to stop this pandemic, it has to start there. It has to start where people 
see what is going on in richer countries of the world and see people with their vaccine selfies because, you know, social media is now universal. Back in the old polio days, nobody had Instagram or Twitter selfies that they were watching in the back ends of Kano or wherever else it was in the world that they could see that, oh, people are taking this vaccine. And so I think to compare those vaccine confidence journeys is also actually, I think, a bit flawed because the world has moved on a lot since then. You know, in those days, it was very cloistered. It was dark. It was being done just in their little corner. But now they can see, you know, that there's a V for vaccinated sign that people are doing. You know, they can see world leaders getting vaccinated Yes, there's the infodemic, but there's also the positives aspects of it that people are seeing. They're seeing the numbers dive. Look at Israel. You know, Israel's completely opened up and the, you know, almost no cases. The UK, the UK had zero deaths for the first time. I think in the last two days, they've had been almost zero deaths and very, very few cases. So lack of data, lack of transparency at local level, say at maybe countries within Africa, is linked into the lack of trust with the global picture. And then when you bring in what you've mentioned, you know, my previous life dealing with humanitarian emergencies and humanitarian situations, I actually just had a conversation with the new humanitarian magazine just about this, you know, where I talked about the fact that the global humanitarian infrastructure is missing in this moment. That where are they? Why haven't we seen a UN Security Council declaration that COVID is a threat to global health, peace and security? Because that's what it is. What India has just shown us is that this is a global health crisis that has morphed into a global humanitarian catastrophe in one very large country of the world and could very well become all over the world a global health crisis. And so you talk about non-state groups and those who fall in between. There are so many in areas affected by conflict and crisis that, you know, as you talk about excess supply in some parts of the world, when vaccines finally get to parts of the Lake Chad region or to Central Africa Republic or to Ethiopia, unfortunately, that then becomes an in-country inequity because it is those in the capital cities who have access to it. It is those with privilege. It is those who will have initial access to these vaccines. It, I'm, I'm sorry, it just, it is the way it is. No matter how much we want to say we're going to stage the vaccinations and it's going to be the healthcare workers first. I mean, just sheer logistics alone, as you mentioned earlier, will mean that it is the, the cities. Now let's think of those who are in areas affected by conflict and crisis. Look at the Tigray region in Ethiopia right now. Look at Northeast Nigeria. Look at Chad, where there's rebels fighting. Look at the Central Africa Republic. Look at South Sudan. Look at Somalia. So we then have huge pockets in Africa of people who are almost inaccessible. The access issues, humanitarian access is already a problem, just getting food to them. How do we vaccinate? And then how do we vaccinate the non-state armed groups themselves? How do we negotiate with governments to say that, look, we know that you have rebels that, of course, you're not in sync with, but we have to vaccinate them because they're people and their potential carriers and vectors of moving this actually between borders. The Lake Chad region will take it into four countries, Cameroon, Chad, Niger, Nigeria. You know, the, the fluidity of those populations needs to be taken into account. And this is why I say that the global humanitarian system is failing us here, because where are they? Why are they not realizing that in addition to providing wash facilities, in addition to providing food for those who are 
increasingly food insecure. You spoke, mentioned earlier that the protection issues for women and girls are just staggering. Female genital mutilation is on the increase. Child pregnancy is on the increase. The girl child is being pulled out of school at incredible rates. The economies of many of these countries are stuttering at this moment in time. So we have a global humanitarian situation. It's not just vaccinations. We need to move the entire machinery to shore up what is happening right now. Otherwise, in three years' time, we're going to have a very, very sorry world on our hands. So when you were speaking, you know, I was thinking about it was back in the 70s and 80s, the vaccines is a bridge to peace, right? The negotiation with, with different sides in order to bring in, I think it was back with the polio, maybe measles as well. But I mean, do you feel like that era is just gone, that it's just not possible to negotiate in the same kind of way anymore? Or is there an opportunity for greater leadership on the part of the international community to come in and bring some of that ethos back? I think the world has changed a lot since then. I mean, I I do think for sure there is a need for greater leadership to be shown by the international community. I think the UN need to sit up and look at what's going on right now around the world. As I've said before, it's not just a global health crisis. I mean, I would argue that, you know, we have put way too much on the shoulders of WHO. This is not a health situation. Poor Dr. Tedros is having to deal with way more than he signed up for. The last we can sort of hearken back to in the era of HIV AIDS, when this sort of thing happened, the world created UN AIDS because they recognized that it was a multi-sectoral, multi-faceted issue that was not just health related. Just like this, we thought it was health. And then we realized that it was economies, that it was education, that the girl women were affected, that those living with HIV AIDS needed to be involved, and that various minority groups and others needed to be involved in the response, but also that it was a disease that affected all strata of society. Something I was saying to my colleague, Dr. John Nkegasong, who's just an absolute African hero, the director of Africa CDC, was that I think perhaps we should now start talking about people living without vaccine equity, PLWVE, just like we used to talk about people living with HIV AIDS. And perhaps once we, you know, because then there was an intentionality, people would purposefully involve those who were living with with HIV AIDS in the discussion so they could design systems specifically for them. It was half tongue in cheek, but then after we finished, he was like, you know what? That's not such a bad idea. I mean, the world needs to realize this moment we're in is a perilous one. And not only is it a perilous one, we have solutions and we've done this before. You know, HIV AIDS was awful. You know, we've moved ahead in terms of lifting intellectual property or signaling that we might be willing to lift intellectual property rights. So that's way ahead. But it was brought together by a more coordinated approach with UN AIDS in those days. Professor Peter Piot was the founding father, as it were, of UN AIDS. And so I have lots of conversations with him, just picking his brain, always wanting to get wisdom from those who have gone before to say, what did that take? And it took diplomacy, it took negotiation. It took a lot of hard work and there was a lot of battering on all sides, but the world came out of it for AIDS in a stronger place because there was this then pulled together, coordinated approach. And I think that is what we're going to need to see 
with COVID going forwards, I'm not saying create a new agency, no, but the agencies we have at the moment are not fit for purpose. WHO is overstretched. I mean, they still have to deal with the other diseases, the regular day-to-day things that they were dealing with before. And yet this is a behemoth all by itself. So can we go back to the polio days and negotiation and, you know, vaccines for peace? I think the world has moved on from there, but I think we need to begin to at least discuss it and how has it moved on and how do we reshape this new world that, you know, what we're calling the new normal. I quite like the old normal, but oh well, you know, it is what it is. Well, and really go back and understand the lessons of the past and what the experience of HIV AIDS over the last 40 years has taught us and how we can apply those in this current context and build on on those strengths, recognizing the limitations of some of the global architecture. As you look six or so months into the future, the situation currently is challenging and there are a lot of unknowns about the virus and the variants and when vaccines will be available. But I would just ask you to reflect what are one or two things that you are most optimistic about as we approach the second half of 2021? Oh, Catherine, I don't know that I can. I'm optimistic about the waiver. Perhaps it's not going to be actualized in six months' time in terms of we won't be producing, but the possibilities of the waiver, I should say. I'm optimistic about the possibilities of intellectual property waivers. Other than that, I'm very afraid for the world. I wish I could. My name means joy. So, you know, typically my mode is joyful and playful. And I don't feel that right now. I think the world is in a perilous place. And I don't think we're fully grasping the gravity of this moment that we're in. Well, I do hope we can then follow up in five to six months time. And hopefully there will be new cause for optimism and greater international cooperation and and leadership and and really solidarity to move forward with a more equitable vaccine distribution as a way to begin to move beyond this very critical phase of the pandemic and build greater preparedness for the future as well. Yodi Alakija, I want to thank you very much for joining me today to discuss challenges and opportunities around the delivery of COVID-19 vaccines in the African context. And good luck to you in your work with Convince, the African Union, and beyond. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you for having me on. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 